This is episode number 257 with Sir Ken Robinson. Welcome to the Melissa Ambrosini Show. I'm your host, Melissa, best-selling author of Mastering Your Mean Girl and Open Wide. And I'm here to remind you that love is sexy, healthy is liberating, and wealthy isn't a dirty word. Each week, I'll be getting up close and personal with thought leaders from around the globe, as well as your weekly dose of motivation so that you can create epic change in your own life and become the best version of yourself possible. Are you ready, beautiful? If you want to listen to my episodes one day earlier than they are released anywhere else, you have to download the app Himalaya and follow my show. Himalaya is free, super easy to use, and has every podcast you can think of. I love that you can leave comments under each episode and even create episode playlists. Make sure you check it out today. Sir Ken Robinson works with governments, education systems, international agencies, global corporations, and some of the world's leading cultural organizations to unlock the creative energy of people and organizations. He has led national and international projects on creativity and cultural education in the UK, Europe, Asia, and the US. His TED Talk, Do Schools Kill Creativity?, is the most viewed TED Talk in history and has been viewed online over 40 million times and seen by an estimated 350 million people in 160 countries. Wow. His book, The Element, How Finding Your Passion Changes Everything, is a New York Times bestseller and has been translated into 23 languages and has sold over a million copies worldwide. A 10th anniversary edition of his classic work on creativity and innovation called Out of Our Minds, Learning to Be Creative, was published in 2011. Another book, Finding Your Element, How to Discover Your Talents and Passions and Transform Your Life, is also a New York Times bestseller, and it is the acclaimed companion to The Element, and provides readers with a practical guide to finding and developing their own talents and vocations. And his latest book, Creative Schools, The Grassroots Revolution That's Transforming Education, tackles the critical crisis on how to transform the world's troubled educational system and is now available in 15 languages. Holy moly, what a bio. And in today's episode, we chat about his story and how he got to where he is today, the story behind his TED Talk, and what it's like to have the most watched TED Talk ever. We also chat about whether schools do kill creativity and his startling insights and what's changed since his TED Talk. We also chat about what is creativity and why it's so essential to our lives how to cultivate creativity in your children and yourself. I absolutely loved his ideas here. How to support your children without stifling their creative spark. The truth about our digital habits and how they affect our brains. How play can power up your creativity. Sleep, the unexpected ingredient for innovative thinking. How much homework should children get? The answer will definitely surprise you. 
What he attributes his success to, his number one best relationship tip, plus so much more. And for everything that we mention in today's episode, you can check out in the show notes and that's over at melissarambrosini.com forward slash 257. And before we dive into today's epic conversation, I want to read the review of the week. Yes, I'm so excited. So this week, it's a five-star review titled Life Changing from Flavia Bazel. And she said, I'm absolutely obsessed with your podcast. It has changed my life and how I see and understand the world. I have a desire for improvements and for becoming the best version of myself. You talk and explain all the questions I have been curious about for many years. I have started the process of healing myself because of your work. I can't wait to continue to grow and learn with you. Much love. Thank you so much, beautiful. I'm so grateful for that honest and heartfelt five-star review. I truly am. And don't forget that if you want to be the review of the week for next week, all you have to do is head on over to iTunes and leave me that five-star review right now. If you haven't done it yet, please do it. I would be so grateful. And now, without further ado, let's bring on Sir Ken Robinson. Ken, it is so great to have you on the show. But before we dive in, can you tell us what you had for breakfast this morning? Well, I can, as it turns out, because I've changed my habit. And I've had, these days I have muesli with uh, blackberries and uh, blueberries and oat milk. Oh, I feel, I feel, I feel uh, terribly kind of morally superior these days because I've gone off fried breakfast. Oh, well done. Well done. (laughs) So can you take us back and tell us your story and how you got to where you are today doing the work that you now do? Like, how did this all unfold for you? Well, it wasn't a plan. It's just one of the things that always interests me about people's lives. You know, if you ask a room full of adults if they're doing now what they thought they'd be doing when they were 15, very few people put their hands up. And that was true for me when I was at school. I had really no idea you know, what I'd be doing with my life. And you know, the idea that if it all worked out well, that eventually you and I would be doing the Skype together, you know, that didn't really cross my mind. I, was, uh, I grew up in Liverpool in England in the 1950s and 1960s. And I had an interest in school, in drama, and in, uh, in art, visual art. But I wasn't really allowed to do any of those things properly because of the way the curriculum was organized. I didn't think very much about it, truthfully. But I did eventually go to uh, college, and I studied English and theater. And a part of my interest was why these things weren't taught more in the school system. And so I got very interested in that and, and did some work around it. And when I left college, I had absolutely no idea what I was going to do with my life. I mean, I had vague ideas, you know, but nothing very much. When I was at school, somebody suggested I might apply to, to be a bank clerk. Somebody else thought I could do—I could be a dentist. I don't know why, because I had absolutely no interest in it. <laughs> and then um, when I left college, I was at this wonderful place in Yorkshire called Bretton Hall. Uh, and I left there at the age of 21, 22. 
And it was one of those nodal moments in my life. I mean, you get them occasionally, you know, where you could pretty much go in any direction. I wasn't under pressure from my parents or anything in particular. And uh, I'd, uh, I'd finished this degree and I kind of had some vague idea I'd like to do a higher degree. It was either that or go to teach English in Sweden. And, and then I was offered, I applied for it, and I was offered this studentship to move to London and to do some research in the area I liked, which was about drama and school and education. And I did that, and then I got involved in uh, a big national project, and you know, one thing led to another. And uh, but, but the reason I was interested in all in the first place was because I always had this sense from you know the people I knew, the people I grew up with, the people I spent time with, that education didn't really serve them very well. It didn't serve very many people very well. And in particular, people you know were kind of bored by it. They left school not really knowing what they were going to do next. Very few of them left school thinking they'd really discovered what they were good at. And that seemed to me to be altogether you know, a kind of catastrophe for people and a terrible waste of talent because my experience has always been that people do have deep talents and, and often we don't know what they are. I always think, you know, that human talents are a bit like the world's natural resources. They're very, very diverse. They're often buried, so we often don't discover them. Uh, and even when we discover them, we have to develop them and refine them. Anyway, that was just what interested me. And and I eventually got a job. Uh, I, I signed up for this PhD and, of course, rapidly ran out of money and, and got a job on a research project in that very area. And we published a book and I was asked to go and talk about the book. And, and I ran a lot of workshops and, and it, you know, one thing led to another. And I think this is how it tends to work for people, that if you have a set of interests, you know, a kind of magnetic sense of direction, uh, and you move towards it and, uh, and, and you're kind of diligent about it, things start to unfold. And, and that's the way it did with me. I went kind of from one thing to another. And of course, when you look back, you can construct a narrative and say, well, that's how that, that unfolded. But looking forward, it's not like that at all. It's a bit like skipping longs, I think. It's doing the next thing that looks interesting, which is really what I did. Mm, beautiful. And so your TED Talk, Do Schools Kill Creativity, which is how I kind of stumbled across you, it's been viewed around, I think it's six million times. Is that correct? It is not correct, Melissa. I shall correct you immediately. It's been viewed about 62 million times. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Actually, what's interesting about that number, you know, is that, it, well, it's the most viewed talk in TED's history. But also, I know it gets shown at conferences and events and workshops all the time. Uh, you know, I travel a lot and people come up and they say they, they show this to our whole organization, the whole, whole company had this on a training day. So I don't know. You can probably multiply the download figure, which is around 62 million. Wow. But it's a multiple, maybe 10, you know, to get the actual number of people who've seen it. Yeah. Yeah. It's very oh, wow. interesting, isn't it? it? It's really spread. I mean, it's not up there with Justin Bieber, you know, or, uh, or Miley Cyrus, you know, but hey, you know, I don't twerk. <laughs> well, I just did my first TEDx talk and it's not out yet. So I'm very excited for that. And I hope mine one day gets 62 million views, but that is amazing. <laughs> and I think one of the reasons why I was so drawn to it is because, you know, I believe that creativity is so important and that, you know, when we suppress it, that's when dis-ease and disharmony kind of manifest in our body and it's life force energy. So I want to hear your thoughts on whether you think schools kill creativity and what we can do about it. So can you talk to that? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the title of the talk 
was given afterwards by Ted. I think it's a good title. It's a question, not a statement. And you, you're right to put it that way. It's do schools kill creativity? Sometimes people say the talks call schools kill creativity. They don't always, you know, but more often than not, I think they do. It doesn't happen deliberately. I don't think it's an, an intentional policy, but it's the way it works out because of the way school systems work. And, you know, I did an interesting thing recently. <clears throat> I was speaking in Canada to an audience of 2,000 people from the energy industries. And the week before, I'd been speaking to a, a big conference in New York, people from the financial sector. And I asked both of these audiences separately if they found that going to school really helped them discover their interests, their talents, and their passions in life, and set them on a direction they knew was right for them. And it was interesting that both audiences just burst out laughing, because they thought, well, absolutely not, of course not. You know? And then I asked them, can you remember a teacher in your life who really made a positive difference? And everybody put their hand up. Now, what's interesting to me about that is it illustrates the difference between the system and the people who work in it. You know, education is a relationship. And the thing we remember most about our time at school are the teachers, the people who lifted us up or the ones who knocked us down, as much as the, you know, the kind of rituals and routines. And it's the rituals and routines that I think are the problem. And I'll tell you why I think it happens, but let me just say a word about why I think it's so important that it shouldn't happen. There are lots of misconceptions about creativity. If you ask people if they're creative, you know, if you ask adults if they're creative, very often they'll say they're not or they'll underestimate their, their creative capabilities. One of the reasons is that very often if you ask people if they're creative, they think you're asking them if they're artistic. Mm. And, you know, so they think, well, do I play the guitar? You know, do I dance? Do I write poetry? Do I paint? And you know, it's not to say that being artistic it doesn't involve creative ability. Of course it does. But creativity is a much bigger idea than the arts. I'm a lifelong advocate of the arts. I mean, I, I was a professor of arts education. But you can be just as creative in science, in mathematics, in cuisine, in you know any, any area of human activity. And what's important about that is that, as I said, creativity is one of the defining features of being a human being. You know, there isn't much, really, when it comes to it, that sets it apart from the rest of life on Earth. You know, we're mortal creatures. We, you know, we depend on what the Earth provides. Our lives are relatively short, you know, in terms of the the life of the planet, you know, it's the beat of a wing, really, that each of us spends here. But clearly there's something going on that's different in character between human beings and other creatures on the planet. I mean, for example, here we are speaking across oceans on these elaborate technologies that I certainly don't know how they work. I mean, you may, but I don't. We have every type of technological paraphernalia, but it's not just that. We have articulate languages, we develop theories, ideas, value systems, beliefs, political systems, economic systems, no other creature comes within, you know, a light year of how human beings have come to be on the planet. We don't live on the earth the way other creatures do. We live in virtual worlds. We live, you know, within worlds of ideas and theories and cultures and values, as I say, and, and social networks. And the reason is, you know, if I had to boil it down, is that we are essentially creative. What I mean is that we, we begin with a very profound power of imagination. Other creatures may have it, but it's much more pronounced and evolved and powerful in human beings. You know, the ability to bring into mind things that aren't present, to anticipate the future, to call to mind things that have happened in the past, 
to step outside the present and to hypothesize. We do it all the time. You know, we fantasize. We think of alternative possibilities. It's just natural to us. It's, it's kind of bread and butter to the way our minds work. Creativity comes from that. It's not quite the same thing. Creativity is putting your imagination to work. It's applying it and doing something practical. You know, I mean, this podcast, this whole series, all the work that you do, you know, began as just an idea that you had, you know, a, a kind of conception that this could happen. But then, you know, from the idea, you know, wherever that occurred to you, to what you're doing, you know, to have this whole paraphernalia of the podcast, to have it established, to have an audience, to have the technical know-how, to have brought it all together, that's a, a continuous process of creativity, of bringing things together and making something happen that hadn't happened before, putting your idea into practice. And what, what we all know is that from the original idea to what eventually comes out, it, it can be quite a journey. And what eventually turns out may not be quite what people had in mind. It's true if you're composing music or developing a, a mathematical theory. But it's how human culture works. Yeah, we are driven by our capacity to have ideas and to put them into practice and to work them into practice in some ways. So it couldn't really be more important, I think. It isn't some exotic power that one or two people have who don't dress in a conventional way. You know, creativity is the pulse of humanity. And my great concern is that we too often fail to recognize that. Our children are born into the world with all these powers. Education is one of the ways that we're meant to develop them. And for historical reasons, largely, our education systems have evolved in such a way that they, at the very best, they marginalize these capacities, and at their worst, they actively suppress them. So it, to me, is a very big deal. Mm, absolutely. So if someone listening has children, or they might be listening and they might be at school, what are some things that we can do to really cultivate more creativity and to inspire our children? Or, you know, what are some things that we can do? Like, what advice do you give to people that may be currently going through the school system? Well, there are a couple of ways to think about this. I actually, I just published a book, as it turns out, on this very thing. It's because um, I'm often asked, you know, by parents about what they should do for their kids at school. And I've got two children of my own. My wife and I have a son and a daughter. I mean, they're not kids, you know, to the outer world anymore, but they are, of course they are to us. They're 34 and 30 now. Um, so we've been through this very practically. So I published a book recently. It's called You, Your Child and School, which isn't only about creativity. It's about what kind of education do our children need these days if they're to flourish and, you know, there are various strands to this. One of them is to recognize how different each child is. And, you know, I, I, again, it's something else I often ask audiences. I ask them if they have two or more children, and lots of people put their hands up. And I say, look, I'll make you a bet, and I will win the bet. And I do win the bet, you know, because it's, it can't be lost. I say, you know, I bet you if you have two or more children, I bet you they're completely different from each other. And of course they are. All children are different. I mean, our two you know, children, you know, they were, were their parents, you know, they come from the same family line. They're similar in, in many respects, but in other ways, they couldn't be more different. And you would never mistake them. Even identical twins can be easily told apart by people, you know, who come to know them. And this is important because although, you know, we all come from, you know, we could trace our 
family lineage, you know, a back and in, in some cases a long way, in most cases perhaps just a little bit. The fact is that, you know, I mean, I, I don't know your family, but it's a fair bet, you know, that there are aspects to you which, which are like your mum and your, your dad or your, your, your relatives, uh, depending how far flung they are. You know, you could recognize family characteristics, but you're not a clone of any of them. I'm not, a, I'm like my dad, you know, but I'm not a clone of him. You know, I'm also like my mum in lots of respects. Every human being is unique. It's a, an interesting question to me is to ask how many people have ever lived. And people make all kinds of wild guesses on this, but the, 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 the figure that we think is probably more accurate than not is that probably a hundred billion human beings have walked the earth. You know, modern human beings like you and me, you know, like groovy people, Melissa, you know what I'm talking about. You know, not, not, <laughs> yeah. not, uh, you know, not Neanderthals, you know, going around grunting at everybody, you know, but uh, sophisticated people with attractive profiles, you know, so like a hundred, maybe a hundred billion of us have walked the earth. But the thing is that every single life has been different. And the reason is we create our own life. And it happens be firstly because we're born into the world in a particular way. I mean, no child is a blank sheet of paper. Any parent knows that. There's a lot of nonsense that used to be talked, you know, about children come in as a blank sheet of paper and life writes experiences on them. I mean, it's absolute nonsense. I mean, children come in fully loaded. We have two kids. They were, it was evident from the first few weeks that they were different. We've just had our first grandchild. She's 18 months old now. And she's an absolute character. You can tell it. You know, any parent listening to this knows that. You know, they're, they're, you wait to discover who these people are that you brought into the world. So there's that. You know, we come in with our, our, all our different sort of in, interests, uh, predispositions, personality, characteristics, and, and eventually, you know, talents will start to show themselves. By, I mean, by talents, I mean a kind of natural capacity for something. You know, we all have them. Uh, and then all of that gets mingled up in the opportunities and circumstances people actually have in their lives. And in that mixture, there emerges, you know, every person's unique biography. It's a, it's a mixture of what you discover inside yourself and what you find in the world around you and the things that you make happen, the opportunities you take and the things you move away from, the things you move towards. And you know, in that process, you create a unique biography, a unique path that is your own life that nobody else has ever had. So education is really very important. And it's not just about creativity. It's about recognizing that on the one hand, we were born with an array of talents and secondly, that we have a unique set of interests and dispositions. So you need an education system that helps children, you know, explore all of that. I, I, I see educate the purpose of education in two ways. One is to help children understand the world around them. And the other is to help them understand the world within them so that they can live lives that are fulfilled and interesting and also become responsible and compassionate citizens. And I think both sides of that are important. So. I always say to parents, you should be looking at schools that offer a much better chance than otherwise of fulfilling those two roles. And just and the reason I put it this way is that there's a big difference, isn't there, between learning, education, and school. You know, I mean, if I look at our grandchild, I mean, she, it turns out, Melissa, by good luck, she is the most beautiful and brilliant child that's ever been born on the planet. You know, so, <laughs> so we're, we're rather pleased about that, that we should have been selected, you know, for this particular privilege. But sadly, I find other grandparents have the same mistaken view of it. But, but, you know, if you think of a young child, you know, they're just a bundle of possibilities, boundless possibilities. I mean, language to me is a very good example of this. That in the, in the first couple of years of life, children in ordinary circumstances 
learn to speak. I mean, I don't mean they're, they're giving paid speeches at the United Nations, you know, but they kind of get the hang of speech and they start to talk and they develop vocabulary and they, and they start to be able to communicate and to, and to be communicated with. And the interesting thing is that nobody teaches them how to do it. They learn by listening, by copying, and, and they learn because they want to and because they can. Nobody sits them down and says, look, we need to talk. You know, this, <laughs> this is how it's going to work. They just do that. So learning is a very natural process of acquiring new skills and understanding. Education is a more intentional process of learning. Well, you know, we, we have education systems because we believe there are things that children ought to learn that we shouldn't leave to chance. And a school is a community of learners. I think at its best, that's the way to think of it. Group, a group of people who come together to learn with and from each other. But here's the thing. Children love to learn. They don't all like education and some have a very bad time at school. And the, the problem is not the kids, it's how we do school. It's, it seems to me it's a real achievement that children who come into the world bursting with enthusiasm and curiosity, by the time they work their way through the education system, they can become alienated, disengaged, and disenchanted with the whole process. And it's because systemically, schools have turned into certain types of institutions, often against the will of the teachers, and they start to become places of, of drudgery or places where kids are not allowed to pursue the things they're really interested in. They have to focus on other things that they may well not be interested in at all. So finding what it is about your own child as the child grows that's interesting about them, that's characteristic of them, and then looking for opportunities for them to at least be able to pursue those things, to be able to to discover more about themselves rather than just go go through a narrow prescribed curriculum that's been set through other interests. I think that's the first priority. Mm, definitely. And if someone is listening and they, you know, you mentioned before, you know, finding schools that really can support those things, if for some reason people cannot move schools or that's the only option they've got, is this then something that the parents really need to take ownership of, like, ha- uh, you know, harnessing this in their home time with their children? Yes, it is. And it's worth remembering that the home is as much of an influence on how children grow and develop as the school is. So it isn't just about what happens at school. It's absolutely also about what happens outside school and the opportunities that parents are able to provide. Now, you have to tread a careful line here, I find, because um, you know, there's a tendency, I think, for parents to get over-involved with what their children are doing. Do you know what I mean? That The phrase that's often used for it is helicopter parents. and mm. It's the tendency to kind of manage every aspect of a child's lives for them and, and also to become like almost a constant prosecution lawyer on their behalf in, in relation to a school. The, the, the fact is that, uh, you know, children need a good bit of freedom as well to become themselves. They don't need to have every minute of the day taken up with organized activities. I mean, I, I speak quite a bit about this in the book about the roles of parents. I say it with some hesitation because I'm, I'm not setting myself up as Dr. Spock. You know, I'm not trying to compete with the tiger mums. You know, I'm, I'm really not, you know, and I mean, I, I'm not trying to give advice to parents about how to raise their children. I mean, I've got two kids of my own and they have an internet connection, you know, so I wouldn't get very far with it. But, but there are some pretty basic ground rules, I think, here, which is, which include the fact that 
over-parenting can be as damaging in its way as neglectful parenting. So finding that balance to allow kids you know, to grow and to flourish and to give them space to breathe is important. Uh, the second thing is it, it's important to have a constructive partnership with the school. You're right. I mean, a lot of parents may find that they, you know, there's only one option, which is to send their children to the local school. And the local school may be great, by the way. There are fantastic schools out there. I'm not saying otherwise. But if, if, if the local school isn't all that you want it to be, and let me just qualify that. I, I, I think part of what's important here is for parents to, as I say, to think through what it is they want school and their children's education to provide. And I think there are a lot of misconceptions about that. We might come back to it. But if there are areas where you feel the school could be providing differently for your child, then it's important, I think, to have a constructive relationship with them. And there are lots of ways of doing that. We want us to become you know, more actively engaged uh, in conversations with the school, you know, beyond the annual parents' evening, which tends to be a bit of a trial for everybody. Having a more regular contact uh, can be important. Uh, it can it, it can be um, it can involve becoming more directly engaged with the life of the school. I mean, a lot of schools welcome parents getting involved and being part of the culture and contributing. Uh, if if you are so inclined and have the time, you know, there are opportunities for parents to become involved in the governance of schools. Uh, and beyond that, you know, there are often ways in which parents can be involved in affecting policy, I mean, if that collectively. So I've tried to set those out in the book and to say you know, that parents aren't powerless. They actually have quite a bit of power in this situation, but like all power, it needs to be exercised responsibly. And I think it helps to recognize that most teachers, I mean, obviously, I can't speak of every teacher, but but in my experience, most teachers are deeply committed to the work they do. Uh, they they do it with a sense of passion and commitment and, and, and a vocational interest in the well-being of their kids. And and they want to do well by the children. You know, they're not looking to do otherwise. And so recognizing the professionalism of the teachers and of the wider responsibilities of schools is a big part of it as well. I mean, it is important to represent and support the interests of your own child. But to recognize it's also rather a complicated social system in a school and that they have to take other people into account as well. So, you know, it isn't just a question of kind of bouncing along to the school with a complaint every time you know, your child you know, doesn't get a part in the play or doesn't get picked for the team or doesn't quite get the grade you expected. I think, you know, it calls for a more responsible and subtle relationship than that. But I have tried to set out, uh, say, in the book, uh, ways in which people have done that and, and with some success. Mm. Any other tips in the book that you can give us? Any really big ones? Buy the book, Melissa. That's all I can tell you. It's like the biggest tip I can <laughs> yeah. possibly offer. <laughs> well, we'll definitely <laughs> link to it in the sh- we'll link to it in the show notes no, so everyone no. can grab it. No, but the re- seriously, the reason I wrote the book is because I know it's so important to parents mm, to take these sure. things into account. There are several other things. For example, one of the, let's just to, to look at a few of them in. In sequence, one of them is that parents are very concerned these days about how much time their kids spend online and mm. with digital technologies and what to do about that. I mean, and schools have this debate too, you know, about should they be able to turn, tell their children to turn these gadgets off? And it is important to think that through. You know, the fact is that, you know, there's always been some kind of 
scaremongering and resistance to new technology. I remember when I was growing up, it seems odd to think about it now. It does feel like an entirely different epoch. But, you know, but uh, when I grew up in the 50s and 60s, television wasn't a big thing. I mean, it didn't really get introduced into the UK. I grew up in Liverpool until the late 1950s, early 60s, when I was about nine, 10. But, you know, it took off like a rocket. And there are all kinds of concerns that people had about what was on television. Uh, I mean, they still have some of those, how much television kids were watching. Well, you know, the counterpart to that now is how much time kids are spending online. And I think it's important to take a balanced view of this. Firstly, uh, digital technologies are here. They're not going anywhere. It's like electricity. There's no point trying to wish them all away. They're there. And they have tremendous benefits in terms of learning and education. It's an extraordinary bounty that we have access pretty much to any sort of material, you know, visually, verbally, graphically, books. You know, we can, I mean, I'm, we're talking now over digital technologies and they are extraordinary in what they've made available to us. And clearly they have massive potential for good and, and in education, not least. There is also a downside, which is that the, the, the technologies and the gadgets are not really the point. The gadgets will just get better. What lies behind them is this entire world of commerce, of advertising, uh, people trying to seek advantage, people promoting ideas, some people being predatory. You know, it's like any mass medium. And it, it behoves parents, I think, to recognize that along with all the benefits, there are actual certain palpable dangers on the internet uh, just in itself. You know, there are people out there with, with poor intentions. And in just the same way that you wouldn't willingly say to your eight-year-old child, you know, if they said, look, I just want to wander off on my own tonight down this dark alley, are you okay with that? And you'd say, well, of course, you know, darling, you know, <laughs> go, go and be free. Uh, or they want to run onto the freeway, you grab them and you take care of them. And it and, and I think parents are properly informed by instincts here to protect their kids from what could be, you know, real, uh, you know, real sources of harm on the internet. We know, for example, an awful lot of young children are tremendously bothered and stressed by online bullying. And you know, bullying is, you know, again, I doubt we're, we're not going to wish it away. Schools who are responsible have proper policies about this. They explain issues to kids. They, they deal with it sensibly, they have sanctions where it becomes a problem, and, and so they should. But online bullying is a different, of a different character altogether because it can be done anonymously, uh, it can be done viciously, and, and it not only can be, it is. And we know all kinds of children are being subjected to it, you know, not only on Facebook but on other platforms as well. So you know, it's certainly right and proper that parents are vigilant around that, just as schools ought to be, because it's a source of harm that we want to protect our children from, and, and so we should. So, you know, and, sorry, and just one other thing about it is that the, uh, to say just now, is the internet has grown hugely, exponentially in the past 10 years. A lot of it's been driven by commercial interests, and they're going to accelerate even more in the future as artificial intelligence becomes much more pervasive. You know, the top companies now in the Fortune 500, you know, include Google and Apple and Facebook and, and so on. And they're sometimes described as technology companies. You know, they're really not. They're data companies. Now, these are companies that are mining our information 
every day, every time you go online, everything you do is being tracked. Every app that's downloaded is gathering information about your patterns of use, the things you like, the things you're showing an interest in, and all that's being bundled up and so sold to advertisers. And, you know, everyone who downloads an app, you know, you get 18 pages of seven font terms and conditions and that, you know, nobody bothers reading it. You, go, you scroll to the end and you say, yes, I accept it. But if you were to read it, you know, I think you'd be amazed. You probably found you've sold part of your internal organs without knowing about it. And, you know, these apps are a, a great illustration of the fact that we've un- unwittingly and sometimes willingly have traded our the benefits of being online for our privacy. And there is a backlash on that. A lot of companies are starting to pull back and say, look, this has gone too far. We do need to, to rein this in. So I'm just saying in short that, that there are huge benefits from the digital technologies and programs that we now have available. I mean, it's the, I mean, I think of Wikipedia as a wonderful example. It's the most extensive, elaborate, sophisticated, and populist-based repository of human knowledge there's ever been. It, it's It's developed continuously by hundreds of groups volunteering all around the world across every age, every culture, and every kind of political and and religious background. And it's a self-regulating database, which of course it gets it wrong sometimes, but but then people move in rapidly to correct and to edit. So, you know, that's a, a fantastic benefit and boon. There are all sorts of other benefits that come out of the internet, but there's a downside. And I think parents ought to take care of that. The one other thing that's related to it is that for partly because of the proliferation of online activity and the amount of time kids spend online and, and combined with the pressure at schools is that children don't do what they always used to do, which is go outside and play. And mm. play is fantastically important for children. You know, I, I ask people, you know, when I meet them in events, how much time they used to spend outdoors playing when they were kids. And people say, well, hours and hours. I did. You no, know, growing up, I spent hours outside. We all had one of seven kids. We came home, and this wasn't in some kind of rural idyll, you know, with a with a lapping stream. This was the streets of Liverpool, you know, just after the war. But we used to go out and play all the time. Kids always went out and play. To be honest, you know, we only really went home for the food. You know, we yeah. we, were, we were like cats. You know, if there was food, we went home, and yeah. if there wasn't, we went and to where the, the food club. was. Yeah, that's right. So. But kids don't know. I've been chairing an international commission on the importance of children's play. And what we've found is that children these days spend very much less time than an hour a day unsupervised outdoors, very much less, typically. Interestingly, the Convention for the Treatment of High Security Prisoners requires they spend two hours a day outside. So, you know, our kids are being incarcerated for a crime they didn't commit. Exactly. And, you know, I just wanted to say it's not just for kids too. Like I, f- I need to play. I need to be outside. I need, absolutely. you know, yeah, it's for everybody. Yeah, it is It is absolutely. It's vital for social, you know, it's, it's a vital part of social development, emotional development. Uh, it develops kids' understanding of how the world works. It's vital for, you know, that, that they do it for physical reasons. You know, we're, we're embodied creatures and our, our bodies aren't incidental to us and we need to grow strong and healthy. And so play is a big piece of it. Moderating the use of technology in a proper way is part of the role. Making sure kids get to sleep is a very important part of what parents can do at home. And I think also working with the school on homework is, a, is another big issue. Kids get too much homework uh, in most schools, and particularly in high schools. I, I think it's become kind of crazy. You know, kids can end up with, you know, like three or four hours homework a night. 
particularly as they go through their breach of high school, there's absolutely no evidence that it does them or anybody else any good. The research is pretty clear on that. You know, that a, a reasonable amount of homework may be okay, but too much simply adds to the stress and the anxiety, not just of the kids, but of course of the parents who spend a lot of time in the evening trying to drum their kids into getting it all done. And, and I say the evidence is pretty shaky that there's any real benefit in, in a great deal of, of this. It's, a, it's, a, it's another ritual. So, you know, it, it's all these various ways in which I think parents can work. And I say this, by the way, as I say, as a parent, having raised with my wife two kids. So I'm not speaking from some point of theory here. I know how messy this gets on the ground and how difficult it is when you're managing a job, possibly two or three jobs to do it. But nonetheless, it's, it's, it's important to realize, you know, what we ought to be trying to get done here. And if we want our kids to have a balanced education that really does cultivate their talents, then you know, looking at the environment we provide at home is important. And, you know, working to create a constructive relationship with the school is, is the other side of it. Mm, absolutely. And you also mentioned before sleep. And again, I feel like, you know, that's so important for us as well, not just our kids. Absolutely. People are largely sleep deprived these days. There's a, you know, Ariana Huffington's done great work on all of this. You know, on, she has a book out called The Sleep Revolution. And, and it's pretty clear, you know, that, that sleep isn't some incidental luxury, you know, that we should take when we can. There are lots of very interesting books now. There's, there's, there is a genuine, as it were, reawakening you know, about the importance of being asleep. And it turns out, of course, that sleep is a vital part of our overall growth, development, and, and emotional and mental well-being. Mm. And the fact that we often sleep too little or we, we lack what people are coming to call sleep hygiene. You know, that's to say kids go into bed and adults go into bed. And the last thing they do is check their phones and have that, those, that, that bright blue light pushing into their, into their eyes before they go to sleep. You know, it often disturbs sleep patterns. Then waking up and, and the first thing we do is reach for the phone to see what's happened overnight. You know, it's, it, all of it quite clearly for many people just adds to their overall levels of stress and anxiety. And so, just giving ourselves a break. I know a couple of people now who are campaigning on behalf of what they call the digital detox. And I'll tell you what, what interests me about this is when I gave that first TED talk in 2006, I said that nobody knows what the world will look like in five years' time, i.e. in 2011. You know, you don't have to be a clairvoyant to say this kind of thing. It's obvious given how quickly the world is changing, but it's worth remembering that the smartphone, the iPhone originally, didn't come out until 2007, you know, the following year. When I gave that first talk, people didn't have iPhones or smartphones. There weren't any. We we're still kind of laboring around with Blackberries and things like that and flip phones. But what do you think how the world's changed in just that period of time you know, in the past 12 years? You know, people are now behaving as if civilization didn't begin till the iPhone came out. And you go to any public space now, and what you see, for the most part, is are people staring down at these little glaring devices in their hands and not talking to each other, not connecting. You know, if you go to a coffee shop, you know, mostly people are sitting there staring at screens and not communicating. And I was looking at this recently. You know, I mean, if you do see somebody sitting there without a screen and they're just looking around the room, you get a bit freaked by it. You know, you think, "Hang on, what, what, what's their problem?" You know. <laughs> They're planning something. So, uh, but all this is very recent. And 
And, and getting back to some sense of moderation where we get the benefits of digital technology, but it doesn't get in the way of natural play. It doesn't get in the way of having a decent night's sleep. And, and it doesn't interrupt the other natural rhythms which have been proper to human existence the past 200,000 years. I think that's something we should be thinking about. Mm, definitely. Absolutely agree. I have to interrupt this conversation to tell you about one of today's podcast sponsors, Blue Blocks, the only blue light glasses backed by science. Now, if you follow me on social media, you will know that I love my blue blocking glasses and I wear them every day because they help alleviate digital eye strain, keep your hormones balanced and help you get a deeper, more restorative sleep. They are made in Australia, which means they are very high quality and all their glasses come in readers, prescription and non-prescription. And you can even send in your own frames and have them add their lens technology to your frames. And for every pair purchased, they donate a pair of reading glasses to Restoring Vision, who then gift them to someone in need in the developing countries. How awesome is that? So to get 15% off, head to blueblocks.com. That's B-L-U-B-L-O-X.com and enter the code Melissa at the checkout. Now let's get back to the conversation. Now, I'd love to hear from you. I know everyone's definition of success is different and it's individual to them, but what do you attribute your success to? You've seen the photographs, Melissa. What can I tell you? You know, <laughs> you know I mean, you wouldn't be asking this question if this was a video conference. <laughs> Let's think. <laughs> well, I don't think, I don't, honestly, I never think of about success, really, honestly. If, I mean, I'm not just saying that. I mean, I, 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 I don't think, you know, have I been a, a great success? I suppose, I suppose, you know, by, by some standards, you would say yes. I mean, with, but, but the measure for me is that I, I have in my life, I've, I've done, I've been doing things which I feel have been, in some way important, not just to me, but to other people. And I think that there's a general principle here, really, and I think it's pretty well established, that that fulfillment is and, and well-being are more helpful concepts than happiness. Now, if you ask most people what they want in their lives, they might as a reflex say, you know, I, I want to be happy. You say, what do you want for your kids? You know, I want them to be happy. Uh, and there is quite rightly now, and I'm delighted to see it, a big movement, as you know, in positive psychology. I mean, for years and years, most of the literature on psychology and psychiatry was about the problems of emotional disorders, you know, the, dis the disruptive effects of, of emotional difficulties, what people are sometimes referred to as negative emotions, you know, like, like depression and despair and anxiety and stress. And, you know, certainly they are you know, as it were, very upsetting things to have to deal with. But emotions aren't all negative. On the contrary, human life's been impelled by positive emotions, by love, aspiration, you know, compassion, empathy, joy, and and feelings of well-being. And it's only latterly, really, now that the psychological you know movement or the, the professions of psychology and related areas have come to recognize that we should be talking as much about the positive side of feelings and emotions as much as about what are sometimes seen as the negative effects. But when people say they want to be happy, the difficulty with it is 
that happiness in itself can be a fleeting thing. You know, it's like a moment of exhilaration. You know, like it's like laughter. You know, it, it's in the moment and it can be great, but it's it, it's a fleeting thing very often. You know, you, you'd be a, if you see people laughing, and I love that. You know, when I work with audiences, I love to see people are laughing and enjoying it, and engaging with it. But if you saw somebody walking along the street just continuously laughing and it went on for days, you'd start to worry about them, wouldn't you? You know, <laughs> like if your partner just came in laughing and woke up laughing, you'd think, look, I, I think we need to have a chat if you just shut up for a minute. <laughs> so, uh, you know, there are these kind of moments of exhilaration. But fulfillment and well-being are broader concepts. They're to do with having a purpose in your life, having a sense of meaning, having a sense of, uh, of service in a way. And I think all the evidence is not just recent research, but the evidence of ancient wisdom and of, of ancient teachings and, and, and techniques of mindfulness is that, you know, happiness isn't just something that we find inside of us. It's, it's something that we, or well-being and fulfillment is something that comes about when we feel that we're connecting with others and being of service to them, that it mm-hmm. comes from our connections not from from being solipsistic. And sometimes, you know, the, the search for happiness ends up being very self-centered, whereas the experience of fulfillment more often than not comes from feeling that you're being of value to other people as well. And I, I the part of, you know, if I try and weigh up what I think I've amounted to, I, 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 I get a lot of feedback from people who tell me that, and it's not just people telling me, I, I can see it, that the, the, the work that I've become interested in over a very long time and try to, to promote is rooted in helping other people create the conditions for the well-being of themselves and of their children. That's why I get so concerned about how systems of education tend to miscarry so badly very often. There's that. And, and, and the other side of it is, you know, we, you know, I have, you know, relationships with people that I value, you know, and, you know, I have a, big extended family of siblings and we all get on and love each other and my parents are sadly gone you know but we have you know I, I, my wife and I've been together for 40 odd years now you know can you blame her Melissa I think not you know <laughs> that's beautiful <laughs> but we have you know we, we met uh, at 1977 at an event that we were together and we've been together ever since. And we've got two great kids, you know, and a grandchild. And, you know, we all love each other. And and that's, you know, it's all of that. And the reason I put all those things in front is I think very often, we've also managed, by the way, to eat and feed each other along the way and to have breaks. And, you know, you know we, we these days, you know, we have a nice house. But, you know, but Terry and I for years didn't have much money. I mean, I didn't, neither of us are doing what we do for the money. I mean, if we'd wanted to make money early on, we wouldn't be doing this, would we? But we did it because we it was we were just impelled to do it, and and there is a big difference. I, I did a book. I'm not just plugging books, by the way, but uh, but as I'm here, I may as well plug this book. When I I did a book, I did a book <laughs> a few years ago called The Element: How Finding Your Passion Changes Everything, and it's about how you know very many people do things in their lives they don't really care for, they don't get much pleasure from it, much fulfillment. They just kind of get through the week. But I also meet people who just love what they do and they live for it and they couldn't really imagine doing anything else. So it doesn't have to be a lifelong thing, but you know, the, but they feel they're at their most authentic. It's where they come alive, where they feel most present when they're doing whatever it happens to be. You know, it could be raising a family. It could be 
you know, being a veterinarian, it could be being a writer, it could be a mathematician, it could be being an athlete, it could be anything. And the book covers a whole range of different occupations, professions, activities. And if you can think of any single activity, somebody, by the way, will derive huge fulfillment from doing it, and other people couldn't bear to do it for more than five minutes. And what it points to is that there's a difference between physical energy and spiritual energy. I don't mean spiritual in the religious sense. Uh, I don't not, you know, but I mean it in the sense of which you're in high spirits or low spirits. And, you know, if you do something that you don't care for, you, you could you could be physically fine, but spiritually on the ground. But if you do something you love, you could be physically exhausted, but exhilarated by it. You know, you, you see marathon runners who, you know, stumbled over the last hundred meters and collapsed the other side of the tape. But they're absolutely buzzing with it that, that, that they've done this. Or people who come off after a grueling tour of some sort, or you know, or teachers who, you know, are running themselves ragged all week long. But at the end of the week, they're buzzing because they they really feel they've done something important. You, you can think of any area. If you do something that you love, if you're so to speak in your element, you get energy from it. It doesn't take it from you. I mean, spiritual energy. It feeds your energy. It, it doesn't exhaust it. And we see, you know, it, our sense of time shifts too. If you do something you love to do. An hour feels like five minutes, you know, but if you're doing something you don't care for, five minutes feels like an hour. So it's always a good guide to me. You know, if you're feeling fulfilled, it's to do with having found work or activities or relationships that are, that feed your energy and don't take it from you. And by the way, it's exactly the same with human relationships. You know, there are some people who just feed our energy and sustain us and you know it. You know, you, if you go to work or, you know, in the home or, wherever or people you know, you see them coming towards you and you think, fantastic, they're here, you know, and, and you kind of get lit up a bit by it because you, you know, you, you're connected and, it, and the opposite applies too. You see some people, they're just energy suckers, you know, they, you know, you see them coming down the corridor and you think, really, what now, you know, can we reschedule, you know, this, you know you can't, because you can't, you can't really, they, they take the energy out of you. So, mm. so there's a big difference just in short to me between material well-being and spiritual well-being and, and we we should have learned this lesson by now you know the world is too obsessed generally with particularly in america where i live you know with the idea of make a lot of money and having a big house and all of the above and if we know anything we know that's not a road to fulfillment i mean obviously we'd prefer to live indoors and be able to eat you know not knocking it but but nonetheless there's no direct correlation there are plenty of miserable people with plenty of money and plenty of very happy people with very little and so finding those things that feed your spirit, that feed your soul is very important. And those things have to do with discovering your own authentic talents and developing relationships that matter, not just to you, but to the people you're having them with. Mm, absolutely. And I just wanted to say 40 years married, that is just so beautiful. What is one thing that you feel like has really sustained your marriage? Like what is the best piece of advice you could give on relationships? Well, she's great. <laughs> I think that's right. just, just find somebody great, and um, I know it's easy to say that, you know. But I, you know, I, I met Terry when I was twenty-seven. It was actually the week my dad died, you know. So I mean, it, 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 my dad, Terry never got to meet my dad. He died a few days afterwards. But we just—I think part of it was we were just first we were excited by each other, you know. I mean, you know, I fancied her. I've got to be clear here with it, Melissa. She was she was beautiful. <laughs> well, that's good. She was beautiful. I fancy her. I still do. She's funny. 
and had had an edge, you know. So I found her exciting, you know. And we kind of we kind of raised each other's game, you know, and uh, we made each other laugh a lot. And we just loved being in each other's company, and we just still do. And mm. understand. I mean, and, and I say that having had lots of other relationships beforehand, and, and she had too. I mean, I went out with a girl at college for a couple of years. It was real, real very intense, you know, full of all kinds of dramas. Now, you're not going to believe this, Melissa, I'm going to tell you. But she finished with me. I mean, the mm. fool, you know, really. Aww, Honestly, no. I mean, when you think what she gave up, you know, what a, what a miserable life she's now had. <laughs> but, but, you know, it was intense, but it just wasn't right. You know, it, it, it was more, it became more pain than pleasure, you know. And, and I've often, I remember saying to Terry when we first met, and it's an odd thing to say, but you'll accept the spirit of it. We're just getting on great and look forward to seeing each other. And we, and we were relaxed with each other. You know, we, we could be ourselves with each other. We're just hanging out. You know, I mean, there's a line from WB8 about you saying we halved a soul. And it's, Terry's a great fan of WB8, the writer. And it, we feel like that. You know, we just felt like we're meant to be together. And, Mm. And I remember when we were first sort of in, in that kind of, you know, relationships go through phases. You know, there's the big romantic phase, all being well to start with. It was lots of attraction. And, you know, but over 40 years, you know, things evolve. You know, you have families, you have kids, responsibilities, jobs, you know, financial crises, God knows what, you know, moving countries. You know, it's not like it's all plain sailing, but, you know, but we've also been able to tell each other what we think and to fall out when we had to and put it back together, you know, when we knew we wanted to. And I just don't think we've ever, ever really doubted it. But the thing is that the, you know, I, th I think the key to it is that we have always tried, we've made a point of it, we've made a point of being honest with each other and, and of talking about things. I don't mean endlessly, but if there's a problem, we try and figure it out and talk it through. And I don't mean it always happens seamlessly. I mean, sometimes I'll go quiet for days about something, you know, <laughs> like you do, you know, I sit on my rock. And you know, we have different styles. I mean, Terry's very good. If we have a row, she'll blow up and say what she's got to say. And I tend to implode and get around to saying it eventually. But I remember when we first started going out, I said to her, as it was obviously this relationship was coming together. I said, do you mind, can we agree not to, dis not to discuss our relationship? And she said, what do you mean? I said, I, I said honestly, I've just come through a series of them. I said, my experience of it is, I have to be careful how I put this, you know, but, but I meant it. I said, my experience is that you know, there's a, an inverse relationship to how much time you spend discussing your relationship and how long it's going to last. You know, if, all, if your relationship is just discussing it, like where are we going, it's kind of over anyway, you know, or at least it's, it's becoming more pain than pleasure. And the great thing I found you know, with Terry is that we just, I said, can we just have our relationship? Can we just be together and enjoy it? And obviously, if things go wrong, we'll talk about it. And if things go very badly wrong, then we certainly should talk about it. But, you know, it's certainly in my 20s, you know, and I find it still with, with people that age, there's a terrible tendency to see relationships as a kind of soap opera, you know, a kind of constant, like, where are we going with this? What's happening with us? It's, maybe it's just in Los Angeles here, you know, but people spend an awful lot of time analyzing the ins and outs of their relationships when actually probably you know sooner or later you've got to face up the fact that this just may not be the right relationship and you know certainly that, that i found that so there isn't any real secret to it it's just finding somebody uh, and there's a lot of it's you know the way the dice falls i guess 
that you recognize fulfills and completes you in some way and that you do that for them. And, and then getting out of each other's way so you can have that relationship. Mm, that's beautiful. I love that. Now, let's pretend you have a magic wand and you could put one book in the school curriculum of every high school around the world. Now, besides your books, let's pretend they're already in the curriculum. What's one other book that you would choose? To put in every high school? Yes, every high school around the entire world. Well, there would be a lot, but but one of my favorite books, uh, for all kinds of reasons, is Charles Dickens' Great Expectations. And, and and the reason for it is, I mean, there's lots of nonfiction books I think people should read. I mean, I think I think Harari's book Sapiens is a very oh yeah, I think it's a very important book uh, for people to look at. And he, he wrote another one. It's called I think Twenty Lessons for the uh, Actually, I've got it on my desk now. At the moment, it's called. 21 Lessons for the 21st Century. I like those kind of overview synoptic books. And I think his is a very good book. And I'd certainly urge all Mm. kids in high school to read Sapiens. It gives you a great sense of perspective on the kind of arc of human evolution. Mm. There's a whole movement now called Big History. And and that's a very important contribution to it. But in terms of fiction, I mean, obviously, there are all sorts of wonderful books out there. But I mentioned Great Expectations because it had a big impact on me as a, when I was a kid. You know, identified strongly with Pip in the book and his relationship with Estella. But you know, Dickens just had such a wonderful gift for language. It, 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 I mean, it's worth reading the book just for that. You know, for for his artistry as a writer, but also for his observations of people and their foibles. I mean, it's to some extent it's a series of caricatures. But like all good caricatures, they reveal a deeper truth. And he presents in all of his books this gallery of human foibles, which, of course, are no different for the couple of hundred years that have elapsed, you know, since, well, I mean, that, that one came out at the end of the 1900s. So, you know, less than uh, what, 120 odd years, you know, it's, it, these, these foibles have not disappeared in that short span of time, even though the technologies have improved, you know, we're still subject to all the same human frailties and, and intrigues. And I love the idea of great expectations, you know, that, that you know, one of my abiding arguments is that we are not victims of our own biographies. You know, as George Kelly, the great psychologist once put it, nobody needs to be painted into a corner by their own biography. That it's the history of human life that people have recreated their lives by thinking differently about them. In the end, it's not what happens to you, it's what you make of what happens to you. And if we can be borne along on the energy of our own creative visions, and we can bring about enormous changes in our own lives and the lives of other people. And it is, in the end, it's that that keeps human culture moving forward. You know, we don't live in the world just as we find it. We create it and we recreate it, and we can remake it if we have the vision, the determination, and the attitude to do that. And the book is about his transition from being a laboring boy in uh, his sister's, well, his stepfather's uh, forge, you know, on the outskirts of London, into what was then high society in the centre of London because of a set of circumstances that elevated him and the opportunities that he took. And and it's, it's also a tale of love, uh, love and love lost. So I, I always find it a very compelling book. And I think uh, 
I read it particularly uh, enthusiastically as a, as a teenager because it sort of spoke to a lot of feelings that you start to have in your teens. So I, I think it would be a good book for most people to have in high school and at least spend an hour or two looking at it. Yeah, and we'll link to that as well as all of your amazing books in the show Wonderful. notes. Now I've got three rapid-fire questions for you. Are you ready? Mm-hmm. What's one thing that we can do today for our health? Get up and get out. Yeah. Move around. Yes. I think it's, I think it's very important. We, we tend to forget, and I'm a, bad, I'm a bad example of this at the moment because I'm sitting here writing another book, which is why I'm delighted to be talking to you so I don't have to do that, Melissa. <laughs> we tend to forget you know, that our minds and our brains don't exist just between our ears, you know, that our intelligence is distributed throughout our entire bodies. You know, we think as we do, we feel as we do because we're built the way we are. And our intelligence is the sum total of how our whole organism works. And we know, I mean, if if you're feeling depressed, get out and do something. Don't sit and stew in it. If you're feeling uh, down, getting your body moving can, it's one of the reasons I, I gave a talk a little while ago about why dance is as important as mathematics in schools. And it is in every way. And recognizing we are embodied creatures and not just brains on a stick is very important. So if you do nothing else, say get up and move and go and do something. Yes. I love that. Totally agree. What's one thing that we can do for more wealth in our life? So more abundance in all the areas of our life. I think serve other people. You know, there, there, there's so so many people in need. I mean, we, well, my, when my daughter left school, I mean, Kate's absolutely wonderful. She she works uh, in the same way as I do now. And we work together on various things, and we we encourage her to leave school when she was uh, before graduation because the school wasn't working for her, and we could see the light was going out in her eyes. And so, you know, it's a longer story, like all these are. I wrote about it actually in one of the books, but. Uh, we talked to them about what she could do. And so she signed up for the local Meals on Wheels service and was a volunteer there for a while. And it, it just helps a great deal, you know, to step outside of your own life and go and, you know, see how other people are living, what their, what their days look like, how often they're, uh, they're worse and sometimes they're better in some respects than the life you're leading. But nobody else is living the life you've got. They're living their own lives and, and facing different challenges and circumstances. And, and getting out and being part of that and contributing in some way, I think, is, is one of the big ways, I say, of improving your own sense of well-being. I mean, wealth comes in all sorts of forms, doesn't it? I mean, it's not just monetary, and I, I imagine that's what you have in mind. I mean, earning money is very important. I mean, I, I mean, I grew up in a family with very little money. And, you know, we've... Because the path we've taken here, we've not set out to to get rich. I mean, that that wasn't the objective. We didn't set out to get poor either. No, but you know, you have to take care of all of that. But yes, I think one of the ways to in, in, increase that is is to is to get more engaged in the world around you. It's it's why I think the word commonwealth is is such a good one. Yes, love that, love that so much. And what's one thing we can do for more love in our life? <laughs> I'm a great fan of the Beatles. I, mean, I grew up in Liverpool in the say in the fifties and sixties. So the Beatles, you know, for my generation especially, and I think more particularly for those of us who grew up in, in Liverpool, have a very powerful resonance. You know, they uh, it's hard to recapture. I mean, people love them now still, 
for the uh, the kind of range and depth and beauty and complexity of the music they produced under extraordinary pressures. You know, but at the time, everything they did was brand new. They, everything they did was was an innovation, from the haircuts, the clothes they wore, to the songs they wrote, to the album designs and covers. You know, to the everything. It, it just kept continuously breaking new ground. So we're in a constant state of apprehension. When the Beatles single came out, it was it was like it was it was it was a national event. So you know, they one of their final albums was Abbey Road, and most of the songs that they wrote, most of them, are about love in its various forms. Uh, I mean, their conception of it evolves over time, but but it's all about love. That's one of the things I love about them that that they they set out to do nothing but good, and I think they largely succeeded in it. Uh, they did that famous song, All You Need Is Love. And it sounds like a cliche, but of course it turns out it was true. And pretty much every philosopher and every poet comes back to that and recognizes the fundamental truth of it. But at the end of Abbey Road, the very last line of it is, and in the end, uh, the love you take is equal to the love you make. That just, I, th- I think, resonates very strongly. Mm. You know, you, you get what you give out. And then if you, if you treat people properly, if you, if you're generous hearted towards other people, if you make an effort to see the world from their point of view, you know, if you approach that, the world in that way, you're much more likely to get it back. You know, it, it's, it's, uh, it gets repaid with interest. There's the, just as we speak, uh, I was watching last night, there's a cu- current court case here in America of an off duty policewoman who accidentally when she returned home to her apartment building, she went to the wrong apartment. She was distracted. She was texting somebody and she got the elevator to the floor above hers and went into the room above hers, which in many respects was identical. Hmm. I can read about it just now. But she went in and there was a guy in there sitting on the sofa watching television and she thought she was in her apartment. She wasn't, and it turns out, of course, there were some differences, and that, that the court case hinged around this. But as a young guy, young African-American guy, she's an off-duty policeman, she pulled her gun on him. He jumped up. There was some kind of altercation. She wanted to know what he was doing in, in her apartment, and he obviously protested that he wasn't. We don't know exactly what happened in the room, but the upshot was that she shot him and killed him. Oh, wow. And it's been a big case here in America for the past number of months, particularly as he was an African American and she was a white policewoman. So, you know, you can, you know, it's raised all sorts of issues in the Black Lives Matter, et cetera, quite properly. So the court case has just concluded. She's been found guilty of murder and sentenced to 10 years in prison. Family's traumatized and there have been, you know, impact statements from the family members. But what really caught the news last night is that the victim's brother, his younger brother, a few years younger, took the stand to say what he had to say about this. And, you know, this woman has been vilified and, you know, her life is destroyed along with everybody else's and she's heading for jail. And one by one, you know, people have said, you know, just what a, you know, what an awful thing this has been. And, and she's come in for a lot of very vicious criticism. And clearly there are a lot of very big questions around why this happened and how it happened and the tragedy that unfolded. But what really has caught people's attention is last night this this young guy is in his early 20s stood up and he said that he forgave her he said you know, you will never be able to replace my brother we'll never be able to repair the loss to our family 
but I recognize your pain. And he said, and I, I want to say that I forgive you and I offer you my love. And I hope you find peace in your life. And he talked about his own religious calling and talked for a few minutes about it. And then he turned to the judge and he said, Your Honor, would I have your permission to give her a hug? And she said, yes. The, and so he crossed the courtroom. The judge was in tears and the, the, the accused came out, you know, from where she was being kept, you know, at the prosecution desk, uh, defense desk. And they hugged each other for about three minutes. Wow. And, and it's, it's the most extraordinary demonstration of compassion that you can imagine. Mm. You know, he's lost his brother, but he recognizes the agony that she's now in and that his agony won't be eased by adding to hers. And, it, and what's happened has happened and everyone has to do something about it now and move on. And he said, I, and I hope you find your peace and I love you. Wow. you know, I mean, I, you'd like to think, you'd like to think you had that, that ma- amount of compassion in you, wouldn't you? Oh my goodness. Yeah. Wow. That's really beautiful. But, you know, that has resonated with very many people and changed, you know, changed the script for a lot of people. And so I say that idea that in the end, you know, the love you take is equal to love you make you know, is, is more than a, more than a slogan. Mm, absolutely. Thank you for sharing that story. And thank you for sharing with us so beautifully and openly and honestly today. It's been such a beautiful time just connecting and listen to, listening to you. It's been so beautiful and I'm so grateful for all the work that you do. And I'm a massive believer in service as well. And I want to know what I personally and the listeners can do to serve you today. How can we serve you? Well, the work we're trying to do is to you know, improve and enhance the quality of children's experiences, that, uh, particularly in schools. You know, Nelson Mandela once said that there is no greater revelation of the soul of a society than how it treats its children. And what I'm really been trying to do, I realized when I read that, is to encourage us all to do a bit more soul-searching. Uh, when it comes to the systems of education we put our children through, which take up 12 years of their lives at the very least. So we're uh, promoting now, we're about to launch a global platform to encourage innovation and change in schools, to support schools who want to do it and to encourage others who feel they could. And I, I believe we're pushing at an open door here because I travel a lot and you know, I work a lot with, with groups around the world. And I know that teachers are on this agenda too. It's not as if I feel that we're confronting the teaching profession. I think the teaching profession is as disaffected and, 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 and alienated by particularly this system of testing and standardization that's afflicted so many school systems. So we're launching this, uh, this platform and a campaign. It's called Boundless. It'll be coming out online uh, quite soon, uh, early in the new year. And uh, yeah, I just encourage people if, if, if you're interested and engaged, then you know, sign up and, and be in touch. Because uh, you know, I, I think that's how we create a movement and, and it's the movement that will lead to the change. Mm, absolutely. Ken, this has been so beautiful. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for all the incredible work that you do in the world. And thank you for just being so open and honest. I'm so grateful that we've been able to share this time together. So thank you so much. It's a great pleasure, Melissa. And thank you for all you do. And thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. 
such an epic conversation with a beautiful man. I got so much out of today's episode. And if you did too, please subscribe and leave me a five-star review in iTunes or on your podcast app, because that means that we can inspire and educate even more people together. It also means that you could potentially be the review of the week for next week, which is pretty awesome. And don't forget to come and follow me on Instagram at Melissa Ambrosini and tell me your top key takeaways from this episode. I absolutely love reading what you guys get from the show. So please share them with me. It fully lights me up. And for everything that we mentioned in today's episode, you can check out in the show notes. And that's over at melissarambrosini.com forward slash 257. And you can also listen to all my other episodes there too. And before I go, I just wanted to thank you so much for being here, for wanting to be the best, the healthiest, and the happiest version of yourself, and for showing up today for you. You rock. Now, if there's someone in your life that you can think of that would really benefit from this particular episode, please be an angel and share it with them right now. You can take a screenshot, share it on your social media, email it to them, text it to them, do whatever you've got to do to get this in their ears. And until next time, my darling, don't forget that love is sexy, healthy is liberating, and wealthy isn't a dirty word.